everybody to the First Name Basis podcast. Um, this has been a remote series that we've been conducting here at Tribal Scale, where we start with industry guests, um, leaders in technology, and we have an authentic but very informal conversation on a variety of topics, including tech and what's happening in innovation. Um, I'm Sheetal Jaley, the host for today's podcast. And with me, I got two incredible guests who I've been chatting with about innovation a lot who have done a lot in their careers, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Um, Chitra, do you wanna go first? Sure, so uh, thanks for uh, inviting me to be a guest. It's uh, very exciting. My name is Chitra Anand. Um, I am an advisor to high growth tech companies. Um, I'm the author of a book called The Greenhouse Approach, and I've just completed a PhD uh, in corporate innovation, so very, very timely. Um, I've spent my Not career. Long, in, I should have said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was it's very fresh. It's, it's literally yesterday. So, yeah. Um, I've spent my career in the tech space. Uh, so, a few years at a software company in Waterloo called OpenText. I spent 10 years at TELUS. So really uh, lived through the transformation that TELUS has gone through. And then I spent five years at Microsoft, um, also living through that transformation when they went through um, from software to what we know today is mobile and cloud. Um, most of my roles have been in strategy sales um, and branding and marketing. Look at that Microsoft stock price right now. It's I know. Yeah. Oh, it's standing the test. Standing the test. John, how you doing, man? Good, good. <laughs> We were just talking about you, the lovely art your wife created behind you. Yeah. I love the backdrop. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> John, introduce yourself if, for, for those viewers who don't know you. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm John Ruffalo. Um, I've actually been in the uh, technology game really since 1992. So uh, the receding hairline is a testament to uh, the three or four boom and bust cycles that I've been through. Uh, you know, and you know, uh, we're we're in this one again. Uh, everyone is both different, and everyone is the same in many respects. Uh, but uh, passionate supporter, uh, venture capitalist, uh, co-founder of uh, the Council of Canadian Innovators, and uh, you know, I think you know the the best way to describe me just a, a passionate supporter of entrepreneurship and innovation in Canada. Awesome. What could you describe what the Council of Canadian Innovators is? What do they do? Sure. It's a lobby, lobby group that Jim Balsley and I co-founded in 2016. And really what it was designed to do was to fill a void that we saw in Canada. And it was really designed to act as a lobby group for Canadian-based Indigenous companies that were scaling up from $10 million and above uh, uh, in a variety of you know, technology, healthcare, clean tech, really kind of the innovation uh, sub-segments. And all it does, it really builds the relationships between the federal, provincial, and municipal governments uh, right across the country. And uh, a number of people may have seen the incredible work that the team there led by Bed Bergen has done all through this COVID. It's, uh, it's really been the one place that the tech community across Canada has been coalescing around. And it's really proving this kind of single voice. We're all in this together. Mm -hmm. Government needs lots and lots of help, but they get confused 
when you know we get so many independent voices talking to, the, uh, to them. And this was really an opportunity to partner together. So as a, as a tech entrepreneur myself, I found it very interesting. Um, COVID, you know, it seems like it came overnight and, and took everybody by storm and completely unprepared. So uh, it was, it was, you know, we all looked to the government to say, what could we do and what can be done? And it looks like the government almost took an agile approach and um, made an iterative way of actually doing some of these rollout plans um, that, that thankfully, you know, especially for, for tribal skill, I've actually even helped in saving jobs. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that approach? I know you were pretty vocal sure. on LinkedIn and some other platforms on what needs to be done, what can be done. Yeah, and, and, and uh, I'll also turn this over to uh, uh, Chitra. Uh, we together uh, wrote kind of a, a bit of an action plan really designed for the various levels of government. But really, there's a three-phased approach uh, whenever you get in these sort of situations Phase one was, and exactly what you had said, this is where the unusual part was. We've never seen demand, the demand side equation drop off this dramatically, mm -hmm. certainly since the uh, you know, last 30 years since I've been uh, working. And it, it was very unusual. And this phase one was, in essence, freeze the economy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we knew this was going to get bad very, very quickly. I think people were underestimating what would happen when demand would drop off. And what we convinced the government to do was we saw, particularly at the earliest stages of businesses, the most vulnerable, and this is right across the technology to the restaurant owner, to the salon owner, et cetera. If the smallest companies who have the least amount of resources hit the wall fast mm -hmm. uh, and hit it hard, it creates a massive cascading impact of, a, of elimination of demand right up the chain. So what we really needed to do was protect those industries as fast as we can, number one, from a liquidity perspective. Mm -hmm. And number two, and most importantly, have them or encourage them to hold on to their workers. The concern that I, that I have too uh, is there was starting to become a tipping point where it was becoming easier for entrepreneurs to lay off workers. And the problem, and, and then the government would support them through the extended EI CERB benefit. Right. The problem with that strategy, though, is a good entrepreneur, a logically speaking entrepreneur, the moment someone's laid off, it is a little bit, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And you only bring them back, you know, when you really have certainty that demand is back to normal. And the problem is many of those workers may never then come back to work for a very, very long period of time. So the idea was if you hold on to these workers, you figure out how you can provide 25% of the funding. But what I started to see very quickly is those entrepreneurs that held on to the workers, they started pivoting their business models. I know you started doing that. Yeah, and absolutely. thinking, okay, all right, my, my demands eroded here, but you know, you're still employed by me here. Help me out. Let's figure this out. 
And a number of those folks who have done that, they have pivoted, number mm -hmm. one. Number two, the idea was once we start getting back to normal, they're already working for you. Yeah. There is no, there is no like, should I bring them back? They're there. So boom, they start. So that was really the concept that we were really trying to communicate. And Chitra, this kind of goes to what you wrote about in your book in the greenhouse approach. I, mm -hmm. I felt like tribal scale, you know, and I'll share a personal story here. We had to transform ourselves. We have engineers who aren't coding right now. Mm -hmm. Instead of letting them go because of this pivot, we were like, well, what can we make them do? Mm -hmm. And we, you know, had to start inspiring. There was change agents who said, hey, you know what? We've always mm -hmm. been effed up in this particular area, let's go mm -hmm. solve that area. And we mm -hmm. started getting teams and little task force and little pods going mm -hmm. um, where everybody in the organization feels so super energized right now mm -hmm. and working towards a greater cause. Because when this COVID pandemic, we start coming out of it, we're so much better suited to do that. And it, it, it was really cool to see that the, those change agents are the ones who became, call them team captains, you'll say, and started saying, hey, I need more than just engineering on this particular problem. I need people from product or people from design or people from the business development team. And let's start going solve this, solving this bigger problem. And we've seen a cascading effect over the past couple of weeks that if they're not working on client-facing things, um, they're actually setting tribal scale up uh, you know, for us to be much better suited for when we come out of this pandemic and what type of company we need to be to come out of this pandemic. Um, yeah. And so talk a little bit, you, you talk a lot about inspiring, getting those change agents in there and, mm -hmm. and empowering them to make change. Mm. Talk a little bit about how, how, the, how that's, you know, what, you, what your theory was there and what you've seen mm -hmm. at Microsoft. Yeah, and, I mean, and, uh, and other companies. definitely. Like I think pivot is the word of 2020 right now. Um, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot um, is adaptation theory, right? So it's all about looking and I, and I talk about, you know, Darwinianism and the whole theory of evolution and how does that relate to business? So, you know, it's not, it's really about adapting your business. And we're seeing that right now quite, quite, quite vividly with what's happening well, with, with COVID, but you're seeing a lot of companies, you know, creating new business models, shifting, uh, trying new ways of doing things um, because, you know, it's really, if you, if you take a few steps back, it's really uh, looking at a worldview because culture and politics and um, social changes really dictate how business needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, you know, you have to have this outside in perspective where you're looking at the shifts that are happening from a world perspective. And then how do you take those changes and then turn them into something meaningful and that's relevant, that's really going to connect with, you know, uh, your existing customer base and your new existing, uh, your new customer base um, you know because if you look at it the average life cycle of any fortune 500 company is about 20 years um, if you look at some of the you know top tech companies for example like I worked I spent five years at Microsoft and I was there you know amidst this massive transformation that they had to go through Microsoft is 45 years old yeah. you know and who would have who would have thought you know years ago and would make a bet I mean if you had to make a bet on a tech company right now you would never say that it would be around for so long so when you start to really analyze and look at some of the shifts and changes that they made you know they took this whole idea of you know these micro experiments that they would do inside and it's all about you know planning for these changes you don't ever see 
any of these companies hit you know one massive jackpot on a transformation or a new product or a new model or a new service it's like all of these you know it's a process of iteration and it's a constant hypothesis testing along the way um, you know so their shift was you know from software you know they went to, to devices and services and then they quickly went to mobile and cloud and it was through this process of constant iteration this constant sort of hunger to learn more to see what's happening from the world perspective and then how do you bring that inside your organization through a series of experiments so that you can transform. So is, that, is, is the main takeaway here that entrepreneurs should be looking at like those mini experiments? I know we're doing a bunch of mini experiments right now, but is that the right train of thought? Some of them are going to work, some of them are going to fail, but it's well, better. I I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think so. It's like microdosing experiments, if you will, right along the way. Um, you know, if you think, of, if you talk to any entrepreneur, so I do a lot of comparisons where I talk to entrepreneurs and then people in corporate innovation and sort of look at contrasts and comparisons on how they think. Um, you know, any great, I mean, you know, you're an entrepreneur, any great innovation or any great product that you have is a, is a series of tests and you extract those learnings and then you continue on to the next level. It's like this process of this learning loop that's constantly happening. So it's this mind mindset and this shift of how do we think and how do we discover and how do we learn and then how do we you know uncover these opportunities and align it to what's happening from a world perspective so john going back to going back to some of the work that you that your innovation council did to lobby the government you were talking about like it was a three-phase approach and the first was like mm -hmm. hey let's 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 keep a let's let's keep the people within the organization let's build upon that what what did you want to see next sure um, the, the second phase is the phase that we're in right now. So uh, while you kind of hold the demand, it's, it's looking at where we are from uh, a health perspective and then determining when you start in, uh, to reopen and the process of reopening. Um, you know, one of our co-authors of our paper, he's a deep expert, uh, from pandemics and healthcare, it's Eric Hoskins, who actually was the former Ontario Health Minister, who provides us with data on a constant basis. It, it, it's clear in my mind that the data is clear that we've we've hit past the peak, and I think people have forgotten what actually the words "flatten the curve" actually really meant, <laughs> and it was very specific. It was to design not to overwhelm the Ontario and Canadian healthcare system. Right. Uh, while you hate as many as you can out of hospitals, right? Correct. And it was, you know, in fear of what happened in a number of European countries. We have so much excess capacity in hospitals. Like, again, no one ever wants to wave we won flag, but holy cow, no one ever thought we would have this excess capacity, number one. Number two, the real uh, trauma here was what happened in the long-term care homes. Absolutely, devastating. And it's a tragedy, and it's, it's, it's a tragedy that not only in Canada, but around the world, uh, this is where a lot of fixing needs to be done. Now, if there is a silver lining, if you take out the data relating to the long-term care homes, Again, the Ontario data is unbelievably strong. The R factor, which is the, the virality of the disease is below one. This all suggests opening up the economy. But when you say that, there is an ordering uh, on, on how you do it. 
number one. But number two, and most importantly, you got to make sure that you don't have a second wave or flare-ups. Now, the challenge that we have here is we have not done a good job on the tech front. And this is where innovation comes in, mm -hmm. in terms of testing and in terms of tracing. Now, again, we don't know enough about the virus yet, but there's lots of good reasons to believe that uh, hygiene and social distancing has achieved a, a vast majority of the success uh, well over 90% of the battle. So what the second phase we think should be is a progressive step-by-step -step reopening of the economy. It's probably a four or five month process, by the way, and it never excludes the hygiene, social distancing and the PPE and it's that combination. But let's just, you know, for argument's sake that that's an acceptable time frame. What it suggests is sometime in the fall, September, October, we're back to normal. Mm. What is right. normal? What is it's mm -hmm. not saying normal pre-COVID, mm -hmm. but it's the new normal. Mm -hmm. And this is where Chitra's book comes in. At the end of that phase is the third phase. And this is the rebuilding of the economy. And Chito, this is what you guys do. This is where corporate innovation comes in. There's a lot of things that we've discovered that we don't do very well, and there's a lot of vulnerabilities in our economy. This is an opportunity for both the private and public sector to reshape the economy once we're out of phase two, um, so that, you know, and, and unfortunately, we're gonna go through a recession, I think, mm -hmm. for about 18 to 24 months. But when we come out of that period, we're bigger, stronger, and better than we were beforehand. Because what a shame this would be with all those lives that have been lost. And if we didn't learn how to make this place or this country a, a better country. I, mm. I, I, I agree with you. And I think Chitra, in your book, you, you talk about this. There's always opportunity in chaos. And I think yeah. we, we gotta go and find the opportunity in this chaos. A lot of innovation happens. In recessions, and yes. for that, great companies come out of that. And I think you know, yes, with if you want to talk a little bit about how organizations leveraging the government support should reshape themselves for what comes next, what John is referring to as phase three. Yeah, I mean, it's a great. I think it's a great opportunity for us as a country and an economy to really take a pause and ask the question is what kind of economy do we want to be? Um, you know, there's great lessons that we can take as, you know, um, from this great pause, um, you know, just for an example, our supply chain. Um, a lot of our products and services are, you know, coming out of certain countries. Um, and, you know, do we want to, you know, how do we want to diversify um, and sort of minimize our dependencies, if you will? Do we want to become more independent? Do, you know, we're, we're going to have several different um, um, industries that are going to be a hit as a result. How do we support local businesses? How do we support local suppliers? How do we create a more fruitful economy that's a little bit more independent? Um, so those are the great questions that we need to ask ourselves. So, you know, we when we start to think about planning for reopening, 
you know, it comes from a problem solving mindset is, you know, uh, if we're sort of our North star is asking that question around how do we diversify? What does that actually mean? And then how do we sort of work backwards and translate that into the different industries that make up our economy essentially? Yeah, it was, uh, I was, uh, I was having an interesting conversation yesterday around automation and robotics. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be a sense of nationalism that you're describing where, Hey, let's, let's, let's may have stuff Canadian made or have mm-hmm. stuff that's just American made. Um, and, to lower the price of that, then robotics and like automation, mm-hmm. and like even the manufacturing process could play a huge role mm-hmm. in being able to do that and make yourself, you know, more, more dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely a trend, you know, that we're going to start seeing. I, I think there's going to be a lot of innovative plays that are going to be coming, come, coming out of this pandemic with that trend. Um, but one of the key questions that, you know, even I, just as an entrepreneur, I have is what else should or could the government be doing? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I always felt that being an entrepreneur, there is no safety net. You're going to have to figure things out on your own. And, you know, not until this particular point, and even I start to realize, hey, you know what, this government, call it a safety net, um, has really helped us to, to help us pivot and buy us the time we need mm-hmm. to come out of this stronger. But what else? Um, do you think like the government can be supporting to do that? Because you've turned me into a believer. Mm-hmm. I'll leave Don't that up you. to you, either one. To either us? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I, I could give you, uh, I, I have a, a variety of examples, but, you know, l- let me start off this way. I am an ardent capitalist. And when I mm-hmm. say that, I'm not suggesting capitalism is perfect, but mm-hmm. I do believe um, the recovery is entrepreneur led. Mm -hmm. Um, I also believe in, you know, the invisible hand of the government when things go bad, you know, whether you want to call it Keynesian, et cetera. But um, when we're in phase three, these are the sort of things that we want to influence. Like, I'll I'll give you one example. So uh, who's feeling this so acutely? Alberta. Why? Mm-hmm. Not only are they getting hit by the decrease in demand from COVID, there's this ugly price oh, war on yeah. between Saudi and Russia. And I've had a number of these debates. And again, through the same boom bust cycles. And I say to my friends and colleagues in Calgary, do you really believe that like, this is a good idea to tie your economy to a commodity price where we don't control the price uh, whatsoever. And I, I, I just- pretty, That's pretty controversial to say to them, um, it, but it's, it's, it's a reality. It's a reality, but, but, but a number of them are realizing, and this is something that, that you know, I had concluded back in 2014 when I was at Omer's, uh, I made the decision to sell all of our carbon-based uh, energy assets starting at that time because of the long-term secular decline of carbon-based energies, but it doesn't happen overnight. Now, the question really is, we can do two things as a government. We could just simply subsidize industries that we know are not going to make it on a long-term basis, or is there a way where we could leverage the short-term assets that they have, but at the same time, use a lot of what we would otherwise subsidize them for, make Alberta the powerhouse of renewables in the world. 
Hmm. Right. This is the same thing that really pissed me off in 2009. I had the same long debate with the federal government at the time, and it was on the automotive industry, if you remember. Mm -hmm. That was a $13 billion bailout of the automotive industry. And I went completely ballistic saying, folks, electric vehicles are going to be the future. We are in zero control of the auto industry, although it today had a good amount of jobs, but decreasing substantially. Of course. So what if we took that $13 billion and made the greatest EV or battery or whatever plants in the world? Mm -hmm. What happened? Four years later, they came, they came a knocking again for more money. And what happened? They closed up shop. Yeah. The automotive companies did the logical things. We didn't. Like, it was obvious. And this is the problem on the public side. How do you separate today's votes versus tomorrow's gains? And that's the fundamental issue. And this is sometimes when my capitalist hat goes, and I wish we had a little bit of central control sometimes so that we can get off of these damn four-year cycles because this is going to be the problem. When we subsidize industries that we know will go down, Mm. Right. We're going to be there again. It doesn't uh, create uh, future wealth. But we've discovered right now that there's a bunch of manufacturing sensitive industries that we should have control over in this country. What a huge opportunity to right. say, maybe it's those industries that we should put some dollars in investment in. That's what I'm talking about. Have a little bit of foresight of where you think the puck is going to go, but mm. don't pick the winners and the losers. Allow the entrepreneurs build the businesses and let them win or lose on their own. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, you know, putting it into investing terms, if you were an investor, you would bet invest in the ETF that you think is going to be the future, not subsidize the ETF that's on its way down. Correct. Yeah, and I and I know it's politically hard because today's votes, unfortunately, Matter. are mm-hmm. there. And this time, again, it's so hard when things change so damn fast because it's hard to re-pivot and retrain people, mm-hmm. and I get that. Uh, but, but uh, again, if, if you read uh, Chitra's book, you know, one of the big things that she does is help guide uh, corporations in particular that are really stuck in their own paradigm. Mm-hmm. And how do they break out without killing the golden goose? Mm-hmm. It's not easy. But I can tell you one thing for sure. The single riskiest thing that you can do is continue doing what you're doing. Yeah. That's the problem, right? Agreed. So you have, to, you have to adapt and change. And COVID just showed us how fast some things happen. It's so true. I have a a question um, in the spirit of uh, sort of ideation out loud. From a funding perspective, um, when we talk about the wage subsidies and CERB, John and Sheetal, do you think, like, I think that they happened in reverse order of how they should have happened. Like CERB CERB came out and then the wage subsidy came out. Um, So the problem that occurred is and I'm seeing it in small businesses right now, is because people are collecting CERB, 
they're not necessarily wanting to go back when things start to reopen. It should have happened in the other order Correct. and now, right? I 100% so, agree. Even, even, yeah. as, even as an entrepreneur, yeah. I yeah. mean, I was faced with the decision of, do I let people go? If I let right. people go, I could save my balance sheet, but they have a safety net that they could go to. Exactly. It's not what I, it's not exactly. what I did. Right. And the hopes exactly. that seeing, seeing a lot of your posts, John, on LinkedIn yeah. was that, oh, hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. there's going to be something else that's going to help us business owners. I agree. Help, help keep the tribe I agree. together. Yeah. I agree. And we, I, we fought over this. Yes, exactly. Big time. It was the wrong order. It was the wrong order. I guess my question also now becomes, because entrepreneurs and because we're, our economy is made up of small, medium businesses, it's an ecosystem, right? Like, you know, part of it doesn't work without the other. I guess, you know, what do you think that the government should be continuing to fund certain elements to get things moving again, John? Like, how do you see this happening? Like, should be funding, at what point do we, you know, do we need to start to fuel the engine, right? To, to, yes. get, to, get, to get things going. So, so this is the question for phase two. Yeah. So what I think, again, and I'm going to be a little general here because I'm sure that there is things that I'm going to get wrong here, but just a general rule. The businesses now that are going back to work yeah. and now are starting to reopen, you got to turn off the benefits to them. Yes. Yeah. The problem that we're running into, and it's already now, and I hate to say this, but it is happening. If you are kind of indifferent economically, whether receiving um, the SERB payment or working, um, we have been seeing a number of essential uh, uh, workers choose to go on to the SERB. Some are legitimately afraid of catching it, no question, and shame on the companies that are not protecting them. And I'm not going to go through the examples right now, but there are a number of oh, examples. There's a number of them. There's a number of them. I mean, a number if, you, if, if you go you, up there, you'll see you know, these frontline workers and without protective equipment. And I think to myself, God bless your soul for coming here and working to, for me to even pick up my groceries and you I have agree. no PPE. I would nail, I would nail the employers on that. That is unconscionable. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is you start releasing uh, the, 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 the subsidies for those businesses that are going back. Mm -hmm. But there are businesses, even in that phase two, that due to government constraints will not be able to go at full capacity. So let's just say it's a restaurant, for example. Sure. And let's say that, you know, you can't have more than say 50% capacity. I do believe that the government should subsidize the other 50% because it was a government imposed mm -hmm. limitation. And that again should run mm -hmm. until the imposition is off. And that's the way to wean off so that the businesses that have the most concerns, um, you know, they'll be on it longer. Um, but by the time phase three starts, mm -hmm. um, unless you have workers who have serious vulnerabilities, mm -hmm. um, you know, pre-existing conditions, that uh, that may last even beyond into phase three. But as a percentage of the total populace, like I can't imagine that being, you know, anywhere near the numbers that we are now 
but 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 again, I, I I think now you should start to see the reversal of this occur slowly. I, I agree with that. I think you know, even if you have if you're if you're living with someone who has a pre-existing condition, let's say you know your parents or whoever who may have you know respiratory issues or the variety of illnesses that you that those people want to get back to work. And mm-hmm. so I think I, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that most people, majority of people won't be abusing the system to stay on CERB. I think would that's want, right. Would want to go back knowing that, hey, if I go back, I could have, CERB's not going to last forever and I definitely mm-hmm. have to plan for my future. So if I got a job in front of me, I better go do it. Yeah. Yeah. And Cheeto, and there's really two types in there. If you are a vulnerable person as defined, and I'm not a healthcare expert, but let's just say mm-hmm. as defined, there, there's going to be two types there are going to be those who are in occupations that can actually work from home very, very effectively. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, as long as the company gives them all of the right equipment, et cetera, wonderful. And even though they're vulnerable, uh, wonderful. It's those that cannot do their job uh, at home and they're vulnerable I think that is a longer term issue uh, that we need to deal with as a society and protect the weakest in our society. But again, I I don't know what the data is, but you know, that I, I just can't imagine that being, you know, a very big portion of the population. uh, Yeah. uh, I see that as a small subset. I would think so. Will you let me, you let me to the next question I have and the topic Chitra I want to speak to you about is Mm. how fast everybody went to working from home and a bunch of bosses i.e. even me um, were like you're not as effective if you're working from home and Mm -hmm. shit the whole tribe has proven me wrong Mm -hmm. but before we get to that uh, one this one thing I started doing in our in our podcast right now is to get the viewers to get to know you guys so I'm gonna ask you guys some rapid fire questions okay be ridiculous I can. I don't even have them pre-written down. Okay. Um, but just from knowing you guys a bit, I'm gonna okay. probably into you even so I learn a little bit more. Okay. From you. So, so Chisha, which was uh, what was the best company that you did work for, and why? Where did you learn the most? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I have to say Telus. I have to say Telus. I mean, I grew up at Telus. I started there when I was 28, and I left when I was 38. So my growth trajectory and my learning trajectory was spectacular. So every three years, um, I had a new role. I had a new boss. Um, I was fortunate enough to work for the CEO who's now at Rogers. Um, and I, had a, I was surrounded by a group of very, very strong leaders who really led people based on their capabilities and were very focused on outcomes. Um, which was is the right mindset for me and for any organization. So they're very outcome-based thinking and, and really supported um, people's capabilities. And it was a, a fantastic, it's an amazing Canadian company, I have to say. Um, and, uh, you know, all everything that I, I mean, the majority of what I learned, I learned there. Yeah. Cool. John, I know that you love riding bikes. <laughs> and when you first to me, I was like, oh, is it like a motorcycle? No, I pedaled all the way down the Panhandle of Florida. <laughs> and so where is your favorite place to go and bike? 
Yeah, so I, I, I'm a cyclist. Cyclist. See, I'm so close. Ah, I got a Peloton. Get the language right. right. <laughs> I got to get the language right. A cyclist. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore cyclist. So when I'm in Toronto, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I cycling quite a bit. Actually, uh, I am uh, have had my most cycling uh, kilometers ever uh, this year just because working from home is giving me lots of time to fit that in. And I also cycle, uh, up, um, uh, I belong to a cycling team in Toronto, uh, with a number of folks that are in there. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is, um, these folks 10 plus years ago would have been all folks that were golfing. Right. And they, they would have all been 20 to 30 pounds overweight. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So what, what's, what's inadvertently happened is not only has it been a great healthy thing to do and, and everyone uh, 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 on my team is, is relatively fit. They certainly weren't before, but it's also the, uh, the business that we t- do together and we call it, as uh, one acronym, kind of YPO on wheels. I love because it. we kind of have a lot of forum sessions. So, way to do business. Um, you know, uh, what I did on occasion before, and I can't wait to do it again. I love uh, listening to pitches on the bike. Nice. Have people ride with me. And, uh, and, uh, it allows people to be really, really quick yeah. with your punchlines and nailing it uh, because, and, and you're also, you know, breathing pretty hard. And I, I find it's actually a great way to get right to the point. I'm going to start booking tribal skill meetings and I'm like, you got to be on a treadmill when you do it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You know, we got, I got Nahal Mehta uh, from Eniac Ventures joining me on a podcast and he does this pitch and run across New York all the time. Love that. Love uh, that. Very cool. All right. Let's promote small businesses. What's the first dine-in restaurant both of you are going to choose to go to? Chitra, why don't you go first? Dine-in restaurant. I think I'm going to go to Gusto 501. They just opened up on the east side in Leslieville, and I don't think they were open for long, and it's a fantastic restaurant. Um, I'm, I will go there when we're, when we're able to. Cool. John? Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a fixture over at uh, uh, Key. Uh, key uh, <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that probably be my first one. But uh, I, I got to tell you, though, is that uh, you, I you probably really, you go there more for the company than the food. <laughs> but I got to tell you, and my kids, uh, they love the fact that they're eating meals. Uh, that they've never had. I enjoy it. The 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 commuting uh, or the lack of commuting has enabled me to cook um, far more elaborate and healthy meals. And my question is going to be for restaurants: is I'm dying for the social interaction and the mm-hmm. beer after work, etc. But I do wonder, you know. Yeah, and I know this. People are getting very romantic on their Facebook feeds, etc. But I do think a lot of people are realizing maybe they should be cooking at home a mm-hmm. little more. A little more often, yeah. 
And a lot of them have added to their culinary capabilities. If I see one more bread maker, <laughs> right? I wonder, are we going to have bread makers post-COVID or are we going to have a lot of these uh, end up in people's garages and, uh, and attics? I don't well, know. I'll, I'll yeah. have you two over. I haven't been doing bread, but I've definitely been up in my grilling skills. So let's do I'll have it. you two over for let's dinner. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do, do it. Let's do it. Yeah. I'll give a shameless plug to mine, and it's also for the social aspect and the food. It's just, I love marble. I, it opened up on King Street and going over right. there. It feels like cheers when I walk in there. It's all a bunch of friends who work there and totally missing it. Yeah, um, okay. Very cool. Okay, let's get back. Chitra, I was going to talk to you about this really rapid conversion of working from home. Yeah. We're now not in groups where we're able to whiteboard ideas out to out yeah. each other and do these yeah. small experiments in an easy way. Um, what advice do you have for innovation to actually happen now that your workplace is, a is, is in a distributed manner? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you know, because there's this huge, there's two schools of thought, you know, is this, you know, the advantages of being in the office because you can have these, you know, water cooler conversations, mm -hmm. you know, or um, see people in the at lunch and socialize and you have these ideas. Um, but the reality is I've always believed in the power of technology and enabling people to do work from home because I'm a critical thinker and you're great. You need time and space and capacity to think. So as much as innovation and, you know, talking to your colleagues happens in the office, there's also this huge opportunity now when we're at home to do some of that critical thinking. And I would actually block my own calendar. For example, you know, at Microsoft, I used to be blocked, you know, at meetings all day, but I didn't have the time, space and capacity to actually think through my work and actually to produce the output. And I can only do that in silence and I can only do that when I'm not being distracted. It's like Bill Gates, he goes away yeah. and it takes like, 15 books on a topic with them here. Exactly. Yeah. And there's this whole concept now of, you know, enabling and allowing people to think. And it's in the thinking when you're actually also being quite innovative. So you can take these ideas that you have in the office, but then also spend time in solitude thinking through that. And we don't allow ourselves the opportunity and the time and space to do that. So I'm a big proponent of that, uh, particularly in the world that we live in, because mm -hmm. we're constantly like bombarded by technology. And, you know, I actually put my phone away and I turn off all my social feeds and it's time to produce. And that's when your best, I find work happens. So I think there's opportunity in learning that way. Um, so I think it's going to be a hybrid approach. I mean, we're obviously going to get back into the office, mm -hmm. but I think the learning here is, um, being Art, able to do you think, do you think that's that's a separate question go good I, I, okay blurted something out. we will get back to the i mean we have to we're human beings we're social beings right, right so right. we need to have that interaction and, and organizations do need that but it's creating that balance and you know in the office for a particular reason um where you can actually consolidate and have meetings when you need to have your meetings and then you have your time at home to actually think through or produce or even to go for that bike ride, right? Because I'm also a big promote, uh, believer in, you know, having creative thinking if you're out for a run or you're on your bike or you're doing a yoga class, you know, I have some amazing ideas when I'm out for a run. So it's being able to extract what you need in the particular environments that you need and then take the best of everything and then produce amazing stuff. So I'd love to get your thought on the hypothesis I had and, the, mm. and that was, we're not gonna need as much real estate and corporate real estate after salary is probably, you know, the second biggest line item expense. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, so if we're able to cut down our corporate real estate, I was like, how else could, what else could you do in your space to actually want people to actually come there and ignite them with more innovation, have them actually set up a place so that you could have more innovative experiences happen because you're going to be saving a lot more money in other areas. Yeah. So how could you deploy a workforce to, to have that? And one of the, one of the cool ideas that I just thought was like, Hey, you know, um, I was actually having a conversation with someone who runs a coffee company and I was like, Hey, you know what, what when we come back, I always thought it was a pretty big cost to have your coffee there, but maybe now it doesn't, if, if I cut back on my real estate needs, it becomes really affordable for, for the people who come in. What are other little tips and tricks you would say that we should be doing with our workforce um, to have them come in and make it a collaborative approach? Because we know we don't need everybody there all the time anymore, at least in our industry. In most this is, it's about reimagining your spaces now for it to be multidimensional. You know, you can think about, you know, learning, you can think about classes, you can think about hosting workshops, you can, you know, skills training, you know, skills training is going to be a huge thing that's going to be required now with the new world of work with the time of AI where people will have to start to uh, acquire and learn new skills in the time of automation. So, you know, skills training, workshops, fitness, wellness, all of those things are becoming more and more uh, important to individuals. So when you when you take away some of the bigger costs for real estate, you can start to reimagine it in many, many different elements. Mm -hmm. John, you were part of the team that started 111, and we got some pretty sad news last week. Um, yes. When we reimagine the workplace, what would the, if you were to do another version of 111, how would you set that up? Mm -hmm. um, it's a bigger question. So uh, I think that, you know, there is still going to be a very big need and desire for community-based workplaces. And when you saw from the CEOs who really reacted quite strongly, did you hear any one of them that I would never ever return to that kind of environment? Not a single one. Not a single right? one, yeah. Not a single one. It's, it's actually but, pretty cool. I started having a lot of conversation with a lot of those CEOs talking about how do we all get together and maybe create our own little workplace. Yeah. So, so the, the issue uh, is, you know, th there's a couple of trends that I actually think were bad trends to start off with, which I think are going to be pushed back. That's ho hoteling trends, whereby uh, I know a number of companies did this in order to cut real estate costs where no one has a desk and they're, you know, large or an hour here, an hour there, and it constantly turns over. Right. Um, th those I believe were culture killers mm. uh, because you didn't even know who was in the office and you weren't even with your own team. And so you might as well have been at home and, and idea. Mm. And so you're going to see ideas like that that didn't really understand the impact of human interaction go away. And thankfully so, I think those should be done. Now, there was an interesting stat I saw. I want to say it was starting, it was comparing 1995 uh, uh, or thereabouts. The average person in an office had 260 square foot per person. Okay. Right. It's decreased to, uh, in non-community uh, like workspaces to a number that's just under 200 
in 20 years. So there has been um, a trend there. And then if you go to WeWork, their target density was 75 square feet a person. Yeah, they're crammed and in there. It's... Mm -hmm. That is tight. And, and that was done in order to make the business model work. Now, in 111, the average was around 150, and there was questions on whether you could bring it down. In fact, there's also city-by-city city density standards, right? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, pushing the density equation, I think there's going to be a backlash against that. But um, I do think that a lot of people do also like the social interactions of being in an office environment, collaboration. I mean, the big thing is, you know, and I love, you know, I, I've always used Zoom and all of these sort of things, but nothing re replaces the serendipitous collisions of people and ideas. It just happens absolutely more magically. So what commercial landlords need to think about is how do we protect the health of workers and at the same time give them a little bit more room for collaboration mm -hmm. like, like let's not treat people like they're livestock here right mm -hmm. um but at the same time think about ppe is there going to be a testing when you come in entrances ventilation all those sorts of things that people have taken for granted but you know the number of people that i do hear saying yeah they like this uh, you know not needing to uh uh commute or they enjoy doing their work in their underwear and all this mm -hmm. sort of stuff but that thirst and desire for human interaction i mm -hmm. think is also impacting a lot of folks so. so the great thing is i think the answer is now it's going to depend there is going to be some folks who love it and all the power to you and some folks that don't so just like think of it as is retail we are going to live in an omni-channel world and it's going to be wonderful and people will be happy based on what their preference is commercial real estate will not go away but uh uh you know thankfully for some folks based in toronto your ability uh to actually uh, save a few dollars and 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 reverse some of these pretty outrageous costs yeah. are going to come back into line. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely, I'm looking at our space and looking like, how could we reimagine it? And I don't mm -hmm. envision it that the whole space, you know, needs to be just tribal scale. And I think we should yeah. make it so that these collisions do happen. You know, I love mm -hmm. when Tony Shea talks about those random collisions mm -hmm. and how that happened. And even if you go to Bloomberg's office, main office in, in New York city, They've designed it in a way for these random collisions to happen, but how do you mm -hmm. rethink that now to do it in a safe way? Right. Yeah. yeah, and it's great. And it's fun and it's exciting. And uh, I, I can tell you, you know, right before COVID, we had leased, uh, or we were agreeing to lease certain space. Uh, we didn't pull the trigger, thank God. Mm -hmm. That exact same space uh, is being uh, uh, made available to us at a remarkable uh, financial discount. And this is only a few weeks in. So, uh, you know, I think the great news on this 
is that while the large companies, it was probably okay for them, for small and medium-sized businesses, uh, you know, think of restaurants. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of restaurants were going under before COVID because real estate prices were out of control. Yeah, it was happening uh, every, every day. You saw yep. an awesome restaurant that was a staple for 30, 40 years shutting down. Mm -hmm. find, find a nice restaurant in San Francisco because I would love to know. Like right. they're, they're almost all gone. They can't afford to be there. So having these in, I, I think it's just, it makes things so rich. Um, so there's going to be pain for sure in commercial real estate, but I can't wait for the exciting time in the, in the phase three when people are rethinking their business models yeah. and rethinking how to maximize uh, space and using people. Awesome. We're coming close to our time. And so Chitra, I wanted to kick it off to you. What, mm -hmm. as a recap, what's your advice to entrepreneurs? What's your advice to even, you know, management in some of these larger organizations um, on how they should start rethinking themselves and get themselves prepared to come back and actually come back with a bang as opposed to not coming back at all and uh, sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest observation that I've had is there's this like general fear, like people are in this fear can be very crippling, as you know, right? So when you're afraid of what the unknown, um, it can hinder you from doing different different types of things. Um, so I would say this, I would say to use this time right now as an opportunity, and I've said this many times, right? You quoted me, like what I've said before is that there's always innovation lying in chaos. When there's chaos, when there's problems, there's always a roadmap or an opportunity for solutions. Like, you know, my husband right now is a small, medium business, totally slammed by this, but we didn't panic we had to stop and think about what is the silver lining there is an opportunity and we've had to pivot we've had to adapt so you know things are always going to happen in our world you know whether it's a pandemic whether it is you know it, we're going to get into a recession whether it's you know changing behavior whether it's supply chain issues but we have to extract those um those challenges and turn them into opportunities so it's really about shifting your mindset not panicking but looking at the opportunity within the problem and it is the problem that is going to help you shape your your outcomes awesome john what advice you got What's well your, what do you suggest is the best biggest takeaway i mean the 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 biggest takeaway is and, and, and let's separate the human healthcare mm -hmm. uh, tragedy that's going on because that, that's just not replaceable and that's highly unusual. But let's talk about the economic and financial. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, you know, the fourth uh, recession that, that I've seen uh, and I won't go into the reasons, but we were predicting a massive global recession in the second half of 2020 Sheetal, we talked about it two years ago, we sure and, and we were bracing down for this. And it does create massive opportunity for those who focus in on things that they can control, um, be very, very adaptable. But this is the time that if you've been thinking of making a massive move or leap forward, 
it's usually made in dark times like this. Mm -hmm. As I say to friends, uh, if they're looking to buy real estate and you're looking to go up market, you always go up market in a recession or downturn because the Delta, assuming that you're in the same rate of inflation of house prices, you're getting a better deal on that bigger house that you're buying. Absolutely. It's the same it's the same thing. You always wish that I could I buy on the dip. And this Correct. is the dip for your career or for your business to leave. Correct. Yeah. Same thing with the stock markets, right? People buy when it's going up. No, you gotta go the other way. It's the same thing on business. While it looks dark and dreary, we will be on the other side. We will be through this by the fall, and then by the fall. We will be in a, in a recession, no question, for 18 to 24 months. And that's the time when you should really be thinking about how you're going to beat your competitors at that time, because a lot of them are going to be frozen. They're going to be afraid. And this is the time markets do move because of fear and greed. Yeah. Absolutely. Very well put. Very well put. Again, I want to thank both of you for uh, joining me on today's podcast. Uh, very, very informative. Um, and I know a lot of people are going to learn a lot from uh, everything you guys have done. I'm going to say this. Dr. Anam, congrats again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> amazing. No feet. That is amazing. <laughs> I'm lucky enough to call you a friend and somebody I could call Absolutely. on for advice. John, 100%. You, John, thank you so much. You always come with the straight goods, man. Uh, I can't wait for our Raptors to defend the championship and then have dinner with you in the Platinum Lounge soon. Yes, yes, we'll do that for sure. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you to you both for joining us today. Uh, I'll sign off by saying um, our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. It's called First Name Basis. We always try to have a real conversation here. You guys definitely brought it today, so thanks. Appreciate it. Thank Great. you. Thank thanks, you. Guys. Thank <laughs> you.